Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum, 169, episode 169. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, I try to play back in my mind, you know, the different nights, the different times of day that we've recorded, different moods, different weather patterns. I mean, it's been... It's been a real lost explorer's journey and we're just getting started. I think it so feels cool. that way. It's when I went back and was looking at episodes over the week because I'm working on adding a bit more to the lost explorers book that that you and I are working on. So I was going back through and the interesting aspect of going back through that is that I cannot believe that some of the episodes are for example, episode 42, meaning that they were 120 weeks ago. It doesn't seem that way. They no. all seem like they could have been last week. I think, wait, Chris and I were talking about oscillation as this important principle that early, or we were, uh, you know, touching on, uh, you know, some of the stuff that we've talked about with time and dreams and uh, Sheldrake's theories and your expansions of those. And I was like, oh my goodness, we've just, we've been at it. We, we hit the ground running. I mean, episode pretty much by episode three, we had, if not the exact structure, we had the spiritual formula of this thing figured out. We and, did. And it, it, it's yeah. interesting how flexible and, and wonderfully fluid <laughs> it's been to be able to kind of change shape or appear to change shape, but musically almost keep bringing certain motifs back, which I think is absolutely appropriate to them because they're mysterious and need to be looked at from several different points of view. And I I really feel it it is exactly like being on a discovery expedition, which is a very rare experience physically in life to do that. Most people, you know, go hiking or trekking in, you know, a, a kind of confined, controlled way where they know where they're going or think they know where they're going and they have a definite goal. But we set out in a very, very different way. And also with, a, I think, a trusting that just the music of, of time and rhythm and the melody of conceptual development and things just take the shape they they do and i think that's the only way we begin to really get a new perspective on what shape and structure and some of these deep informing principles that you and i are sort of butterfly hunting you know in mm -hmm. the wild mountains of strange strange notions absolutely 100 percent. on that note do you have a band for us today I do, and I've kind of returned to a coda on this front. In a sense, we're going uh, a nod to one of our great heroes, Terrence McKenna. We're going with the Machine Elves, okay? Mm. But there's, if you want to get a handle on, think of Tom Waits and Kraftwerk taking a month off on the big island of Hawaii to record an ayahuasca, you know? That's kind of the, the, the framework. They are a hermetic master Eurorack synthesizer ensemble, decomposing and constructing melodies. 
incorporating biofeedback and animal collaboration, plant xylem and phloem moving, you know, in the stems of plants, dolphins, baby rhinos bleeding like dolphins, cicadas and bees, fetal pig heartbeats, which is one of my favorites, and the strange, absolutely distinctive crackling sound of a taper getting an erection. Have you ever seen a taper get a heart on? There it no. is. It, you have to you have to YouTube it. It is absolutely remarkable. It does not seem possible. It really does seem like an art performance. And there is a very peculiar sound. But in any case, the Machine Elves album is called Where Do All the Melodies Live? And conceptually, it's kind of a musical riff on the story Flatland, which is a little mm-hmm. album math you know it's a fairy tale allegory about the the creation and curatorship of of melodies and the question is are the machine elves good in this regard or or not uh but they also look into some of the you know where do all the melodies live that's where is the first word in their album So they're looking philosophically at the problem of spatializing what inherently can't be spatialized, which I'm coming to see in my memory and alertness book is one of the number one confusions we face. We are constantly spatializing what by definition is intangible and therefore Mm. outside the notion of space. But they take us through the notions of past melodies, lost melodies, recorded and notated melodies and the increasing tendency for melodies, you know, in a hip hop sense, in an emergent music sense, to not be, uh, not have sheet music forms, you know, they're just recorded sound. So they're doing a whole bunch of interesting things with memory systems, inherent structure, probabilities, and the possibilities of new ways of experiencing sound. Because in their world, the big question is, how many melodies can there ever really be? So that's the awesome. machine elves, where do all the melodies live? That's awesome. That's very cool. I also watched a uh, taper get an erection on YouTube while you were talking. So, Oh, good. Did you see what I mean? I mean, I isn't it all, it, it's just, it's amazing, right? I'm mm. just like, whoa. Startling. Yeah. Um, do you have an, aphorism for us today i do and i thought with a a philosophically directed band i'd go very much in a different register simple quiet poignant and very earthy there is a hidden sadness in voluptuous female behinds and i think that is really true and I think there are layers to that that uh, got me thinking in many other directions Um, because I'm not thinking of just uh, that they're not going to stay beautiful, that, Mm -hmm. you know, age and death. I think it's much more than that. I think it's, you know, it's about beauty that you can't have perhaps it's about beauty that you want to have in a certain way, which you may not want to stay in that mode, you know, all the time. Right. And you may not want to share that mode with, with other people. And uh, 
it ties into one of the the scenarios I'm about to lay on you pretty soon. So that's that's my aphorism. There's a hidden sadness in voluptuous female behinds. I feel that way very often just in passing women in general. I've always felt that way that there's yeah. a kind of there's a kind of sadness to it. And it doesn't have anything to do with, uh, you know, being dissatisfied with where you are in terms of having a partner or anything like that. But you do sometimes see like a butt or a face or boobs um, and you just feel a little sad about it. You you think to yourself, oh, man. And let's like you said, you don't I don't picture them growing old and thinking, oh, that'll that won't stay that way. Yes, just... that's not it. That's not it. I, look, I am so with what you're saying, and I think that would be worth teasing out because I think it's something in, in the male heart that mm-hmm. women really just don't understand. I think mm-hmm. there is, and there is that. It's interesting. I was, I, I have to walk past the psychology building to get to where I teach, and there's the uh, inner experience lab and i sometimes just poke my head in to see what you know what's going on and there's a couple of people who i i suggested some some experiments to about playing some different melody lines different sort of tropes from popular songs of different era and seeing what the male female skew is in terms of response and i think men do vibrate to a certain kind of romantic melancholy that mm. women just by and large just do not understand at all mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. that's just one part of of the the complex uh organic prism of masculinity that is just not really thought of or even considered by women generally you know i 100 agree 100 agree what is my imaginative challenge for today? Okay, okay. Well, the backstory is some gentlemen come to the door and they're the kind of gentlemen that you feel inclined to let into your house and you hope they leave soon. But they have a mm-hmm. message for you. You have been uh, co-opted, drafted mm-hmm. to be a double agent for a very peculiar event coming up. You don't know very much about these men, but they are purporting to represent the government in a kind of men in black sort of way. And your mission is to report on any possible terrorist attack at a gathering of major celebrity figures and crucial decision makers, the real cream of the true influencers of today. And you can think of it as a kind of mini Burning Man meets Bohemian Grove with Mm -hmm. slight tinges and suggestions of Jeffrey Epstein's Pleasure Island, if you Mm -hmm. choose. But there is a pretty viable threat that this gathering is going to be attacked by 
anarchists of some kind who are wanting to bring down free market capitalism and rampant corporate commercialism, the celebrity culture of stale and ghastly Hollywood, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio getting older and older on yachts with younger and younger girls and just idiot celebrities, you know, and dubious politicians. The thinking of the terrorists is take that group out and you really do have a reset of the world, you know, mm -hmm. or you could argue that, well, no, they'll just be replaced. You know, it's hydra headed, cut off the heads and they'll just grow back. But in any case, you have been co-opted and you are embedded as a hospitality agent, con you know, sort of concierge. Mm -hmm. You have access to the entire facility you can create the sense of compound uh as you like uh it can be an island it could be a mountain retreat it could be underground you could keep it very abstract but you have definite employment there you are there to serve to help and to assist and to keep both ears open one to the anarchists who want to free the world of you know idiot celebrities and crass commercialism and so they think and the other what purports to be the secret authorities the dark police that you know really run things or so they say okay all right cool good cool. we're sending you on a mission i like it i like it well on that note let me close out this program that's trying to open. All right. So for today, you have some thought experiments, I believe. Some yeah, that's ideas. a good way to put them. That, that that's a good way to put them, or 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 scenarios, you know. Um, but they have a kind of strange relationship, and I I thought it would I. I wanted to hear what you say about them individually, but I think one of your one aspect of your genius is the ability to really uh, create some synergy and holism and to bring things together. So here's the first one, and I call it the Caltech, MIT, Princeton, NASA scientist problem. If you follow the not insignificant body of literature in the media where these types of scientific professionals in the relevant fields, pretty major fields, physics, relevant engineering, et cetera. When they're asked to speculate on the nature of extraterrestrial intelligence, what would an alien civilization need to know in order to be able to reach us here on Earth? There is a wonderful and I think hilarious commonality to what they try to answer with their speculation. And no matter how objective they try to keep it, what they come up with always implies an alien intelligence that is very much like Caltech, MIT, Princeton, NASA scientists. And they, of course, don't see that it's 
it's absolutely ludicrously reflective. And when I was studying the history of, of uh, it, the literary history of the imaginary voyage and the whole plurality of worlds, yeah. idea, it's a huge body of, of work on that. This is one of the great problems because the authors, no matter what their intent is, they always come around to some kind of echo reflection shadow of humanity. It's kind of inevitable. And the their works therefore become kind of allegories or satires or commentaries on human society in the same way that, that Gulliver's Travels was, you know, on a terrestrial sort of basis. So I was thinking about that. And I thought this is an example of what we were talking about last week, the, the very, very peculiar quantum nature of the heart of the universe and the edge of the universe. And we were saying that humans strangely inhabit both almost simultaneously, mm -hmm. but oscillating backwards and forwards. And people might go, well, okay, the heart of the universe is completely relative. And that means you know, that kind of every every peoples have thought they were significant, the chosen ones. They've got, they think in those sort of literary folklore sort of terms. The edge of the universe is a little bit harder to visualize, a little bit more sci-fi, event horizon. Well, what's not, you know, and on. But I think that the the NASA scientists, to use just one again, their idea of extraterrestrial intelligence bumps into the edge of the universe because they can't think past their own human and very tailored, customized, restricted definitions of intelligence. They just can't. And I haven't seen any example that has ever really broken through to genuinely uh, alien ideas that way. I think it's just impossible. I think it's almost inherently impossible because you could say, well, something truly alien will just be impossible to express. Mm -hmm. So that's point number one about it. But my leverage point to get you started thinking is that and this is one of the big things I'm running up against in the memory and consciousness book is that there's a very big difference between talking about what a civilization knows and what individuals know. And remember back when we were talking about, are we a sigil of our society and culture? Are we an emblem of it, an organic dynamic artifact, or are we really outside it? And really don't know what's going on because part of our mission, I think, is to make people feel more integrated with the universe and a little bit more in control. So I'm going to stop there and just kick back to you about the edge of the universe problem of imagining alien intelligences and the question of how do we bridge the gap between what a civilization knows as in what is known at any given moment in history and what the individual knows? Wow. Those are really interesting questions. The first thing that comes to my mind with alien intelligences is the variety of species of beetle. Okay. And 
that if that couldn't be some utilized as some kind of message, the various different colors and shades and slight alterations in beetles taking on the intricacies of poetry or language or something of that nature, you know, an alien species with the ability to holistically take in an entire planet, understanding the movement of its various species, like a kind of understanding through variation might be interesting. Now, in terms of this edge of the universe, uh, what can civilizations, how do you reconcile what civilizations know versus what an individual knows? So a civilization fundamentally as an intelligence exists for, oh, there are two ways of looking at it. There's the cynical cancerous, the desire to spread, to move out into outer space, or you could look at it as a framework for developing individual life. And so I wonder if the way to reconcile those isn't to look at the interplay between the individual and the civilization and finding those parts in which they overlap. But at the same time, not necessarily saying that the way that we reconcile those are by finding, you know, the only the times when they are mutually beneficial to each other or when they're working. Uh, like when an individual is working for the betterment of a civilization and vice versa, uh, or even working against each other. So I think that <clears throat> my initial thought is for individuals to begin to try to conceptualize of themselves as civilizations, right? To think of it that way although i don't know if thinking about a civilization works as an individual here's what i'll do i will for my initial thoughts i will say uh number one the alien intelligence thing i think looking at more oh you know what though this actually does tie in though right because i'm immediately conceptualizing of the alien species as the big civilization type thing and humanity itself as the as more of the individual, right? So thinking okay. about that in terms of how uh, the individual thinks in terms of immediate wants, uh, the way that we're able to understand things through our through our senses, and then the kind of civilization is this alien thing that's working with uh, a roster of uh, of senses that we don't have, right? So we have six, perhaps this is working with 600 different types of senses. Um, <clears throat> those questions, I think, and I'm sure you, you knew this at least intuitively, if not practically and concretely, it, those do seem to me to be almost the same question, right? The distance is that great. And the way that you make them come together in the center well, actually, I think I've probably rambled a bit. What do you think about what I've said so far? Let me pause for a moment. Okay. Well, I think I, I really, really enjoyed that. There was some some real movement there. And I think that demonstrates the, the complexity of thinking about thinking, ting-ting, as they say in New Guinea. Yeah. 
uh, which is a little, you know, it's butterfly-like uh, and hummingbird-like. You know, it's it's movement of of a emblematic and uh, inherently mysterious kind. One thing that really grabbed me is is the question of how you get an individual perspective thinking like a civilization. You mentioned that. And, you know, this is a beautiful way to understand the classical notion of education that, say, John Stuart Mill's education by his father at home with one of the most amazing libraries of, of its time. So homeschooling with an absolutely dedicated father teacher figure who was apparently quite capable as a teacher and a very willing adept student and, you know, perhaps some discipline. Sure. You know, kids are kids. But I mean, Mill's level of of just linguistic fluency alone is is, you know, proof of some success in that method. But the point was, I think, in up until we enter the 20th century and really establish a very, well, relatively speaking, a very egalitarian approach to public education. And we start dealing with mass numbers of students. We start dealing with the concept of really formally training teachers. We, we've got all sorts of, of diversity of background and linguistic capability as issue. We've got sudden, we're trying to, we went from educating 2% of the population really well to trying to get to 60%. And there is mm-hmm. just a, a trembling at the foundations. Uh, Brian Allen Carr would appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that really is something we, we need to get back to. It's become a much more daunting challenge that many, um, not teachers, but educationists would say, uh, look, that's just impossible. We've created too much knowledge for someone to really be able to embody and, and to perform, you know, and I don't know if that's really true. I think that's nonsense. I think that if we reverted honestly to the classical education model and said, let us do what the past did well for more people. Let's not, in trying to educate more people, abandon the enormously successful methods of the past. Let's not do that. Let's let's go back to those and simply try to work them through a bigger number of people as best we can. So I think that that is one way to to respond to that point, that I liked that thinking. And I like, I mean, what was important to me about that was that you arrived at that very organically. It it it, it kind of formed and it, it's still difficult to think about. But if we could get back into that mindset, because this is also a way to tie back to one of our really important early, early themes about remote tribal cultures. Their idea of intelligence, education, and initiating the young is to make people feel as congruent with the culture as possible. So all of the education, the training is around that idea. Now, their culture might be very different than ours. Yes, but their method 
And their thinking is exactly what you were talking about and is exactly reflective of what we would in the West call a, a classical approach to education. And it's a part of thinking like a civilization, too, is knowing when to let off the gas, because civilizations do that, too, if they're going to remain civilizations in any sense. I mean, that's what we're witnessing right now. <clears throat> if there's any kind of downfall that we're watching, it's the chronic inability to take your foot off the gas pedal and know when to sort of float and allow the systems that have been already established to take over. You and I, before we started recording, we're talking about letting the third man into the classroom, for example, and occasionally right. taking a back seat and allowing that. That to me is civilizational thinking. It's an understanding that you as a person, it's like it's it's completely transcending yourself as an individual and not even going to a point where you become a cog in a bigger system, but you yourself are the system there's a fundamental difference between those things right? this is so exciting this is so exciting <laughs> because you've done some really you know really nifty footwork there to advance an understanding of our point of view about inverting ego and identity which in our current situation also strangely is instantly linked with conformity and collective herd mentality mm -hmm. and to elevate to another level or another uh plane in sort of a shooting gallery sort of frame where the individual is thinking civilizationally that mm -hmm. is a beautiful thing to bring forth and i would suggest that that i'd like to see that as as part of your uh a new contribution to our book that I think mm -hmm. that's a really beautiful way to think of the challenge for the individual to think civilizationally, not let's say socially. Let's take that's the middle sort of mm. round mm. of problems where it it just is uh well it's the restrooms, it's the marketplace, it's it's social media. It's just it's not unimportant, but it's not the way to really understand things and to expand consciousness. And finally, to, I think to bring the most uh, holistic and capable mm -hmm. individual to the social level. Absolutely. Yeah, you are moving and conspiring with civilization and you are mirroring it in a certain sense to the best of your ability, um, which again, this is part of the Lost Explorer stuff, which is what you do until you no longer do that, as a civilization might do, right? The rule is the rule until it's not the rule anymore, and you do something <laughs> I else. like that. That's exactly, you know, th that explains so much, and there's no uh, other way to put it, and there's no reason to find another way because it makes such great sense. It's mm -hmm. just a lot of people go, wait a minute, the rules, you know, and they either want no rules or they want rules to be absolutely eternal and unchangeable, you know, mm -hmm. and neither mm -hmm. of those perspectives is in any way helpful to anyone, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that response, David. Well, are you ready for a, a, a very a different kind of meditation, a very different register? Yes. 
Okay, this gets to uh, a personal associative uh, patterning of my own. And I'm, I'm working on tracking down many of these in my memory book, uh, not to talk about myself, but to give a model, to give a series of, of examples of how trying to track down your own thinking may open up doors, you know, that you, it, it mm -hmm. makes perfect sense. How else are you going to do it? And I give enough different examples to, I think, show different kinds of thought processes and possibilities of discovery. But this one is called The Professor's Dead Wife. And for whatever reason, I come back somewhat odd, with an, an odd degree of frequency to a professor I had in college. The class was in the 19th century novel. And he was very much like a character from a 19th century novel. And I think intentionally so. There was a particular kind of New England college affect to him. You could read an entire sort of background in, in just seeing him and maybe hearing a few words. Very class-focused. Uh, he had an incredibly... Uh, distinctive and i would say uninviting personality mm. uh, he was arrogant he had a very very dry wry sense of humor verging on acerbic and often just snark mm. uh, but he did have some capacities for insights that i took note of but he made a point of telling the class that his wife had committed suicide by drinking bleach. And that story, that meme, that motif comes back to me. And it got me thinking, Am I remembering the professor and his very distinctive appearance and personality? Or am I really remembering the story of the wife killing herself with a cleaning product? Mm. And I had a vague intuition. I think, I don't know if I found out about this through research of some kind, I don't think that he told us or gave us specific information, but my feeling was that, that the wife's death was about two or three years before my class. So relatively recent history, still raw, but not like it just happened. And then there's, of course, the question of why he felt the need to tell us that. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did he think we were going to hear about it through some sort of rumor mill or whatever? But so I've got the question of what I'm really remembering there. Is it is it the professor or is it his dead wife? Or is it just a question that you really, really can't separate those? And there's no way to do that. But here's sort of the tack on that I, I want to include in your uh, brief here. 
because this got me thinking, and I wrote this. I believe memories are multi-encoded. They not only link, associate with, and relate to what might be called other memories. They much more importantly perform and consolidate deeper structures of intuitive associations and personal conceptual protocols. In other words, the professor and the dead wife not only participate in an ecosystem of story, resonance, situation, and implications. This thought form contains at other levels what Marcel Duchamp might term hidden noise, secret freight. Um, so I go on about that, but I might sort of wrap that up after you have a ch chance to respond to that. But what I'm looking at sort of in the end is I went from this movement of thinking in terms, thinking civilizationally to a really kind of microscopic look at an algorithm at work in my own life, my own mind, my own history. And to try to unravel that, to see if there were any clues to deeper structures, to um, other dynamics of, of motifing and pattern organization. So over to you. So the connection between the two is interesting because at first you're looking at the relationship between these two specific memories and reconciling which one is the chicken and which one is the egg. <clears throat> and then you bring the third element in. That's very It's very interesting, right? Because you don't try to sort of uh, sequester these two memories into their own little cubby where they're pinging off of each other there's a there's kind of a generative and almost archetypal memory that is looking for its manifestation within the dichotomy or even the interplay between these two memories right which is interesting to me that there can be archetypes that depend on association for them to work it's not just a simple archetype of uh the grumpy, acerbic, snarky professor, right? It's it is a it's an archetype that depends on the nuance of this story about his wife drinking bleach. And so it makes me think that in the same way that we're trying to understand alien intelligence, to reduce any memory to any one thing that's free of an association between two or more things might be incorrect, right? So everything is the product of the outer mingling of two different stories. And those two stories are very closely related. I think that if you were to have stopped after mentioning, you know, did this story about his wife drinking bleach potentially color my the way that I remembered this guy? I would say that probably, maybe, but probably not. It's more likely that those two elements click together like Legos in such a way that a particular gestating archetype in your subconscious really wanted to come together and just couldn't, which makes you then think, holy shit, do we have an entire well of souls in our minds full of half 
unconnected archetypes that need those two binding elements to fully form within our minds. That was just so cool what you just said. That's man, exactly, that's blowing my mind. This is exactly what was exploding in my mind, but you've been just giving it such beautiful musical articulation. I think that is a remarkable, remarkable progression of evolution of thought there because it it it, it really appears to me that this is the case. And I mean, just for starters, what you've done to the notion of archetype of thinking that look this it's not a question of trying to be reductive and trying to uh, you know uh dissolve a holism not at all no that the, it's looking for the real holism the deeper dynamic and mm -hmm. expanding the notion of archetype to being a you know a really truly dynamic interplay relationship a conspiracy of of a kind you know there are many different ways to sort of phrase that and to think of it and probably many different ways apply but moving from that to then well what are the implications for the deeper level of consciousness and the semantics of thought and dreaming there it does seem as if there's a well of souls potential that needs to be called upon where you know and we as we talked about earlier the problem of spatializing but maybe shouldn't be spatialized we don't actually have to think about where that is we don't have to address the mind body problem we really really don't you know, that that's that is absolutely this where a lot of people in our line of, of thought, I think, have, have really lost their way because they have tried to answer that question and they get stuck in mind body land. Mm -hmm. They go they either get labeled a Mysterian like Rupert Sheldrake or, you know, they they really do slip into a, just a classic mechanistic, you know, deterministic science point of view and become part of, you know, the establishment that's not going anywhere. So I think that's really, uh, and it's kind of, you know, I mean, that was Jung's direction, you know, mm -hmm. that really let's talk about the well of soul, not, you know, let's talk about the capability and not try to locate it in the universe, you know? Yeah, don't exactly, exactly. I want to, have i have one quote here from a book that i just read that might add a bit because i'm thinking that also in addition to it being a nice addition to thoughts about memory it's also a very interesting way to think about the purpose of art if i can be so bold as to think about art in that way as something that has a purpose i believe it is in this chapter no. Oh, here we go. This is from Gene Wolfe's uh, Sword of the Lictor, book three in okay. his book of the New Sun. It says um, it, the, the character Severian is about to enter this mountain range that he will be fighting his way through for the rest of the book. The truth was that I was thrilled by the mountain views, the vast panorama of the empire of air. As children, we have no appreciation of scenery because, having not yet stored similar scenes in our imagination with their attendant emotion and circumstances, we perceive it without psychic depth. 
Isn't that a bit what we're talking about there? Oh, absolutely. No, I'm glad you found that. That's great. No, that's a beautiful harmonic. I I, I, mm -hmm. I get that exactly. Mm -hmm. I get that exactly. I think that's really important. Right. Okay. Art as a yeah. as a kind of uh as as a function, again, and you and I don't like functions thinking or purpose or anything like that, but one way to think about it might be as a you know having one piece of the puzzle having this guy this acerbic snarky guy and then art acting as his wife drinking bleach in order to connect that archetype that furthers you know this etheric body that's inside of us in terms of where the well of souls is what a boring question what do you mean where is truly it? truly i mean we're we're really talking about <laughs> you know, algorithms and magic spells and language frames of how associative patterns connect because none of our metaphors or analogies work. We, we need to keep searching while we're trying to find these patterns. And sometimes we just discover some little hieroglyph of our own thinking and our own associative patterns and we might, if we give that a little inquiry investigation a chance, we might then get a glimpse at something else. Mm -hmm. And the, the thesis is that levels, layers, planes, ripples of associative patterns only make sense kind of on their own level. Mm -hmm. And they really then... You know, in musical terms, they begin to sound like chaos or noise. If we, if you go to another level and you, you you're not understanding how to hear it, you know. And I think that those are very clumsy metaphors, and and it's it's the the struggle is to find a way to talk about it at all. But kind of one way to gloss it is that what what is hardware on one level becomes software on another, and and on and on and on. There are levels of coding that I think are completely mysterious and wonderful. And I think they are entirely unique to us as individuals. They might be our real, you know, QR code, our real ID mm -hmm. number, you know, in the big sense, if we could know how to find it, but they are also a path to civilizational thinking as you mm -hmm. described. And I think Absolutely. that beautiful uh, beautiful collision. And that's how we change that dynamic between being at the, the heart of the universe and being at the edge of the universe. And I hope listeners, you know, have no uh, question about that. The heart and the edge are, are, are both good. There's nothing privileging the heart of the universe as opposed to the edge. Because there's no point in that. It's an oscillation. You know, we're moving mm -hmm. backwards and forwards and whatever. There isn't really the, the right preposition for it. Uh, okay. Well, I have a, a third point here. And I think it ties in because it, it it's... The way it worked for me is, is the third element of this triad. It is now that it's a kind of technique or a mechanism that can be used to understand the movement in the other two, the professor and the dead wife and the Caltech professor's alien intelligence problem. And I've called this one porn, colon, 
an unexpected explanation of emblem. We've talked about emblem and emblematic thinking on the show, and I'm taking this idea to some extent from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said the world is emblematic. And I think he meant something very rich by that. And Dave and I have been trying to kind of uh, decode, untangle, explain, expand, and give more performance depth to that idea. And this is a very odd way of explaining it, but I really think it 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 might be helpful. So I'm going to share it. It's very difficult to watch porn of any kind, I'd suggest, and not know what you're seeing, at least in that all-important instant intuitive way. Porn is emblematic of a crucial psychic experience. (laughs) It is but one emblem. It performs itself and is resistant to reductive explanation. It can, however, help us to see more clearly how an emblem behaves, which is peculiar. In one view, for instance, porn is strangely precise, hyper-specific almost. Simultaneously, it can be vastly plastic and plasmatic. Emblems behave emblematically, which is only as metaphysical as the mind-body problem is. Okay, so a lot of stuff going on there. It's, It's a peculiar example of a way of shedding some light on this fairly complex notion of what an emblem is, as opposed to, which is often confused with, like, say, a symbol. Uh, No, 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 no. I mean, I'm using it in an entirely different way. You and I have discussed it in an entirely different way, but that may not be clear. So I've returned to this because I think it is one of those, one of those tools, one of those aids, a mechanism, a magic amulet that is Mm -hmm. helping us deal with the two other points that we've talked about this show. Now, in terms of the emblem, and I'm, a hundred percent understanding where you're coming from, where a, a symbol it has a metaphorical relation or an encapsulating effect on an overall concept or body of people. And an emblem is exactly what it is. It is the most what it is. Um, exactly. There's no abbreviation. There's no gloss. There's mm-hmm. no abstraction. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I, what's interesting to me about that is that it seems to be this polar, well, not maybe not polar opposite, but a spiritual opposite of the of the kind of archetypal metaphorical heart and outside that we've been talking about. It's the necessary component of not just being what it is, but being the most of what it is that it can be. It does to me feel very much like the pull between the symbol and the and the and the the emblematic object are another kind of uh, uh, heart and outer territory, although one of them doesn't have any sort of 
claim on which one it wants to be, however you want to think of the heart. Now, I th- what's so interesting about that is that it's so outside that the emblem's not even in the range of the symbol to begin with, right? It is just right. the, th- the thing that is. So when you think of emblems, is that to you a kind of... Um, Well, it works as a kind of a as a as a shorthand, but is it doing that duty of of being the yin to the yang of the symbolic and the archetypal? Is that how you're thinking about emblems? I think that's a pretty good way to put it. I'll certainly take that. I think that's a really great start. I really do. I think there's more to it, but I think that's an excellent, excellent entree point. It is the uh, the oscillation that connects the yin and the yang as as one you know, as a whole Mm -hmm. long in that sense. So it's a form of energy uh, and it's apparent uh, manifestations in any sense as noun, uh, however tangible or conceptual. I mean, it's moving around those categories and it is the energy that gives those categories any kind of framework and structural support at all. So it is kind of an atmospheric, condition prerequisite i think of of categories period um and therefore all that that implies in terms of metaphors and structural the basic architecture of of thought and certainly language perhaps not thought perhaps this is entirely on the language level and that other channels of thought, as we've said, open up other possibilities and alternatives that we need to get into the mix, you know, almost in a musical ensemble sense. But it's definitely, definitely uh, the the core of the language structure issues and all that that determines about our thinking, our consciousness, individually and civilizationally. Yeah. Can a word, can language work emblematically, or does it have to be an image? I'm going to say that no, that language can't. I think that it can feel and apparently deal with emblematics and emblems, but I don't think it can be contained. It's like set theory, you know, I think it's, it's the set of all possible sets. And is it, a, you know, we get into the Bertrand Russell sort of paradox. Um, but I think that the language is ill-suited to try to embrace emblematics in, in any kind of inclusive uh, and therefore kind of, colo- you know, colonial sense. You know, it's, it's just not, it's not, it's either too big and too vast and I think that might be the case. It begins to just lose shape. You know, it's like a, it's a gas that's drifted mm-hmm. off, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas what, what you know, it, if it were a mist, you know, hovering over a reed bank and had some structure and form, even if ethereal and sort of seemingly uh, boundaryless, it, it maybe could do it. But it, it just loses that capability. And when it does try, I think when it tries too hard, I think that is where we get symbol and allegory and, and all of those things that aren't bad. I mean, writers need right. to do all those things. Yeah. But the degraded forms. It, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. 
the degradation is what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So the degradation. So, so essentially, you know, even, even describing an emblem degrades it, right? Because it's the introduction of symbol to the, to the emblem. So it's something that has to be seen and perceived. I'm thinking something even more than just a single image. It's, it's all the things that come along with the image. And occasionally those disparate elements come together to form the emblem. Or would you say that there is, can a single image be an emblem of, of something else? It can be. It can be. Mm-hmm. I think it's always taking a risk, you know, of, of becoming a symbol or a sign mm-hmm. in that sense. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think what you and I have just been engaged in is a beautiful example of, of what, how emblematics as a dynamic works, mm-hmm. because there's mm-hmm. been this response that has changed the nature of the idea it's it's a flowing uh verb form rather than a fixed noun and this is the the generative and yet very very puzzling aspect of emblematics that that i think freezes a lot of thought because it it is so directly uh and simultaneously fixed and completely unfixed um capable of well identification mm-hmm. and yet absolutely dynamic and you can't pin it down not only can you not measure its speed and location it doesn't really those things don't really apply um so it, it it's the core energy that makes that runs other things like categories and i think that if we wanted to get more in touch with emblematics we we do so by being in touch with language as that's one of our ongoing themes and particularly major devices metaphors categories uh and anything that resembles a comparison or a contrast i mean those three things if you really paid a lot of attention to those, you would obliquely get more agile with emblematics. That's, that's my thesis. But I think that, you know, it, it, it was weird for me to think of porn being that example, because I do think that my, my, for, my sort of uh, predicate uh, concept here is that People do instantly psychologically react to porn. I think it's a very peculiar mass communication. Mm-hmm. It's something that we know is a mass communication, and yet it's you know consumed privately. Very, very peculiar form. There's good psychological evidence that I learned from the uh, inner experience folks at the universe that there are some definite changes in mood in, in a group who when something when you know a, a, just a standard sort of very straight porn film comes on and it upsets them there, there are things that are going on that we're responding to in a, an extremely intuitive way so then what I, i'm saying is that that is an emblem just one of many for a particular kind of psychic experience where we in fact are certain we do know what our intuitive response is, and we're not doubting. We're not in question about that. Mm-hmm. We're we're attuned to it 
even if we don't know what the frequency or wavelength of that is, but we are certain about it. So that's, I wanted to make that clear. So in this one sense, porn is emblematic of a very complex, multifaceted psychic experience that can, you know, really covers a lot of, of terrain, but it's, it's strangely really precise and mm -hmm. and hyper specific mm -hmm. in, a, in a particular kind of nuanced tone way you know mm -hmm. there's a kind of feeling we get and there's a reason why porn is, is you know consumed generally speaking in private and there's all sorts of stuff going on there that nobody really questions honestly in their own mind but sometimes we have trouble talking about it but then simultaneously, it can be enormously plastic and includes so many different apparent manifestations. And so you might think that when I say emblem, I'm talking about a kind of platonic form that exists, you know, in some eternal ether and then just finds its way into physical manifestation but that's not it at all it's really it, it the emblem is something entirely distinct it isn't something that gets copied or replicated in that way it doesn't operate on those principles and i think i'm getting my mind kind of around how to talk about that so did that make any sense because what you helped me with is, has made it feel clearer mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no it makes total sense it's a it's a reverse platonism almost it's uh yeah thank you right. okay that's yeah. that helps god you're good dude. okay <laughs> this is an example of just how much we can really help each other as members of a community a tribe and on our paths to thinking more uh, civilizationally, it, it really is about sharing and about true conversation mm -hmm. in a, a classic sense of being on a discovery expedition together or with a group. You know, it, it really can't be sustained, I don't think, in, in too large numbers, but it's just fantastic. I really... Uh, that was very helpful to me. And I hope, well, if anyone didn't enjoy listening to you, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. You're listening to the wrong show then, if you didn't like yeah, that. One. Yeah. 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 Um, so this Burning Man Davos situation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Our double yeah. agent implanted with moral decisions to make, logistic, all sorts mm -hmm. of things. Lay it on us. So this is on a moving island which is weighted down with new technologies and vehicles and several marble counters upon which many different drinks are being served. The influencers are mixing with the lizard people, so to speak. Uh, Mr. Beast is handing out pre-made bunkers to rich people full with fully staffed with Nicaraguan workers, if they're willing to buy piles of trash from the Pacific Ocean. There are... Ice bucket style challenges where celebrities lip sync the final words of Canadian euthanasia patients. Uh, there Ooh. are giveaways 
giveaways for electric cars with gas generator backup batteries in the trunk. Now, I'm as a, as the double agent, I am completely uh, on the side of letting the terrorists win at this point, right? <laughs> and there, and there are numerous <laughs> numerous vectors through which they might do this. There are potential child sex bots that have been implanted with a ninja assassin training program. Uh, but I see my opportunity in the actual synergy between the dark lizard forces and the influencers. So the dark forces want to use the celebrity influencers as avatar gods capable of influencing so many people that they in fact move en masse with these avatar-like figures, right? Cutting out all the middle bullshit of, you know, getting people to buy something or to think a certain way. No, this is an actual influence with a capital I, like the ability to move and influence people. Wow. The terrorists have introduced an idea here called Operation Middleman. And working with one rogue billionaire have gone to the lizard people and said, hey, why do you need these influencers to manipulate people in such a way? What if you became the influencers yourself? And using a variation on Elon Musk's Neuralink technology, they are able to mind meld with the influencers themselves, to put their minds into the influencers' minds so that they no longer have to speak to them halfway. And I completely let this happen because I see it for what it is once those two separate forces have been combined together, the whole thing will fall apart because the lizard people functionally don't understand human beings. They don't know what makes them tick. They need the influencers for that. They need it to be dumbed down in a sense, made palatable for a wide audience. So I allow them to do this memory sharing demonstration. And then I quickly watch as they tear themselves apart on this moving island that then sinks to the bottom of the ocean. I survive somehow. I don't know. In this scenario, I, I survive all this. Well, far out, far out. I'd love to see, you know, to be filming the, yeah, the end, just the absolute carnage and mayhem. That was wonderful. I think the choice of the moving island, you know, is is very apt and uh, mm -hmm. it's variation on Lost, the TV show, but also yeah. the you know, Jeff Bezos, these super yachts that are $600 million. I mean, it's just, it, it it's hard to know, you know, what, what they think of that. Um, but all of these grotesque uh, gatherings of these just increasingly cartoonish and, and venal people, uh, I feel that a level of disgust is emerging and that mm -hmm. it's possible to sort of maybe seek some sort of sacrificial world renewal ceremony by, you know, just eliminating them. But I like what you've done in terms of, of how that would resolve. You know, mm -hmm. I think that would look really cool. Yeah. The, the, the thing that gets them every time is hubris. You just have to let them have enough rope to hang themselves that's the whole thing that's going on right now with people who are concerned about uh you know 
central currencies and or digital currencies, I should say, and the takeover of the world by Russia or China or the US or nuclear war, all those things, by the way, could might happen. But really, all you have to do is just wait for them to kill each other and go about your life and think civilizationally. And you'll be all right if you survive, if you survive. It's interesting, you know, I mean, hubris was, you know, the key to ancient Greek drama, you know, certainly the tra- on the on the tragedy side. Um, but it was also playfully part of, of the comedies. And in a way, I think you could say in, in civilization terms and, and the ancient Greeks being kind of one of the great civilizations, no matter how you look at it. And they have so much going for them. I think their core word, as in a fear, and also something characteristic of them, as diverse and and many islanded as they were, is hubris. I think that's a really, really important insight. Um, It it never goes out of fashion, does it? I mean, it's it's kind of the, the human story in one word. Mm-hmm. absolutely nice mr yeah. osborne the teacher that's a teacher yeah. thought. yeah 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 i'm getting more and more of those as time goes on do you have a uh tip and a tool i do okay so uh the tool is i'll give a little background i like to do my experimental music compositions and so I end up doing little music videos on YouTube, but I'm always kind of really just looking to see how lateral my thinking can be, how much I can accomplish with no money spent and really a, a, a creative response rather than any kind of package special effects. So I was washing or about to wash a pan that I'd cooked oatmeal in. And there had been water in it. And the oatmeal film, which some people Mm -hmm. may be familiar with, had sort of floated to the top. Mm -hmm. And I realized that if I shot video of it, it would look like the sky. Mm -hmm. And then I realized it was the water, which wasn't really seen in the video. It was just seen as Scott. The water reflected my hand. So I could just do this hand of God sort of thing. And I I made it sort of like a Parkinson's hand of God, you know, a little bit sort of, whoa, what's, what's going on? And so I was thinking about this. One of my, uh, points in the uh, textbook on creative writing in the imagination, which I'm doubling down on in the memory and consciousness book, is working with optical illusions. Uh, They're a lot of fun. They're popular. You often see them, you know, in the media. Is this a blue and gold dress or, or, you know, those kinds of things. But I think optical illusions are really great meditation points and they raise a lot of interesting questions and there's a huge body of them but with my oatmeal sky film what i'm suggesting is actually doing some 
crystal radio, garage, dinner table science, and, and making up some of your own optical illusions. I think they'd be great fun to do with kids. I think they're great fun to do as uh, with a partner. I think there's a lot of interesting principles that emblematically come through rather than instructionally on a ladder of bullet points about what's going on. They really just emerge, you know, kind of organically. And I think then the larger mysterious emblem of illusion, how much more important, you know, an idea could there ever be? Uh, I think some of that may come into another kind of focus. Awesome. I like okay. that. Okay. And my tip is really practical as they as I try to make them, but it's so easy and I think it's really important. I don't know if everyone does this as much as I do. Uh, I do go in and manage it and try to sort things out. And that's how I've sort of reconnected with what I'm about to describe. Uh but I didn't used to do it. It's something that started maybe a couple, I don't know, two years ago and a conscious thing. And I'm talking about bookmarking websites and articles that I visit, you know? Um, so it's a conscious bookmark in my, you know, browser, not the, the browsing data that's just there automatically. Mm -hmm. and I want to, you know, erase, you know, regularly. Check your Google bookmarks if you're a bookmarker, because I went back and visited mine. And my first psychological take, I was, you know, seconds of looking down the list and I felt good. I felt the moment I started to semantically process, I thought, well, this is kind of a, a great, weird list that almost reads like a poem of a certain mm -hmm. weird kind. And then I started thinking about, oh my God, there's some really important information here. Sure, there are a couple of ones that, you know, for shopping, like a pair of shoes, and I'll click off and I go, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. But in terms of academic, intellectual, artistic subject matter, or just fun, you know, some great stuff. And I also realized that I'm looking at an algorithm of very private associative patterns. Another great look at the third man in the woods thinking, you know, and I think we forget that we have these clues about ourselves all around us. And if any kind of self-knowledge or at least um, something resembling self-knowledge is a goal, then any kind of information that we can get or any kind of intelligence that we can gather is worth doing. And I was really amazed, but I was also really rewarded with a couple of, of very significant things. For instance, the occultist and scientist, uh, Robert Flood from a very early, mm -hmm. who's absolutely Flood. critical, yeah. you know, um, in the history of certainly Western science, but also a high magician in another sort of... I've got one of his grimoires. 
about yes. Dr. Flood's grimoires. Well, you know. I mean, he's just one of those pivotal figures who is emblematic and mosaic and in moving across dimensions. And it isn't just the historical anomalies of his time that gives him that. I think he he actually had that capability. But there's a, some important work that he was doing. Of course, he was doing in the same way that Bruno and many others. But he was he was working with memory techniques and, mm-hmm. and magic. And there's just, and then I found August Strindberg, the um, Swedish playwright and occultist. Uh, His book Inferno is absolutely one of the best things. He has a real freak out about electricity, you know, before really electricity was really getting started. Uh, he had this paranoid breakdown in Paris, thinking that the infernal electricians in the, you know, were working at it through the wall, <laughs> you know, pre David, you know, Lynch by a hundred years, I don't know, a long mm-hmm. time, but uh, he did these beautiful, very primitive photographs of just exposed plates, which he called celestographs. And of course they really weren't reflections of the sky. They're just, you know, interesting, bizarre chemical patterns that formed on the surface entirely due to terrestrial forces, but they're still beautiful. And they, again, tie into another part of my the book I'm working on. And you'd think, well, of course they do, you idiot, because you bookmarked them. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is sometimes we do that as a way of not thinking about things. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to be very honest about that. It's a way of of moving something to another category. And we've collected that. In, I mean, this is a lot of people deal with whole books this way. And that's why sometimes you think, well, is are those really part of a library or are they furnishings? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so what I'm saying is just dig back into your bookmark list and revisit some of those decisions that you made, you'll gain a little bit more insight into some of your thinking patterns and deep associative connections. But you also may find some very practical information that you highlighted and uh, made a message to yourself for good reason. It's so fun to experience the strange nature of time that bookmarks bring. Yeah. You, you well, pick up a thread that you dropped six years ago. And- yeah. You're like, whoa, you know, the Greeks had the Kronos and Kairos. Uh, One of those was like archetypal time, you know? And so it's like you're in the ideas time and you've you've moved into a different realm of time perception where six years ago and today are the same thing because you're in the ideas time now. I love doing that kind of stuff. Going back through my emails, um, opening books that I read a long time ago because I do a lot of scribbling in books. Yeah. I'm a very active annotator. Um, and just thinking like, oh, and it's always surprising how long that goes to in a very similar way to going back through the archives of Lost Explorers. Because once you refine an idea, the time is just shocking that sometimes passes between these things. It's like, oh my yeah. God, it's been three years. I I ha- I was thinking about this before Gus was a twinkle in my eye. That's that, and yet it feels like it just happened. So 
It's a, wow, it's funny that's a heavy that way. way to think. That, that's really interesting. You're right. Well, mm -hmm. it, it, it's time travel of a very, very uh, just plain bizarre kind. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. know. I think any notion of time travel is sort of inherently bizarre. But this is really, uh, well, it's emblematic and butterflyish. You know, it just mm -hmm. keeps, mm -hmm. it's very hard to... Uh, there's no flight plan that could be filed for it. Mm -hmm. you know? Have you been dreaming? I, you know, I have, and the one I want to share is um, kind of stands out because I, I have had a, a a rich period of dreaming. I think it's been um, nothing nightmarish, but but I think there's been a lot of disturbance, and yet there were uh, some nights where I just apparently just slept without moving. You know, it just a very, very deep sleep. But the dream I want to share is is absolutely emblematic, or and I think some people would say also symbolic, um, and that's what maybe we'll explore here. But it, it's certainly an archetypal dream. It's working on a very Jungian sort of level, and I'm choosing it because it stands out so completely from much more uh, narrative unfolding, realistic dreams without some obvious overlay of, of meaning, even though they had significant tonal flavorings, significant, some of them uncomfortable and distressing as I kind of vaguely recall. But in this dream, I am in what you might call a rural environment i can't pinpoint any exact specifics but it seems like a composite of rural new england where i went to college and i at one point um lived with my girlfriend on a farm so we were really in woods and barns and shacks and stuff uh in a kind of harsh late autumn winter sort of moment and then Maybe Australia and my rural property, but in the background, it, it it's a kind of a feeling of like English landscape painting of a very sort of pedestrian uh, level of, of realistic quality is just sort of spreading out indefinitely. So it's peculiar and it's multi-layered. And I have a vague sense that the landscape itself is is sentient in some way and more cohesive than I'm able to deal with. But the crucial elements and my crucial focus are on two large snakes and they are in the water and they're not like anacondas or South American snakes or, uh, or the African snakes so much. They remind me more of uh, Australian brown snakes, which grow to maybe seven or eight feet. And they are one of the most poisonous or venomous snakes on earth. Um, but they're, they're not obviously as thick as a boa constrictor or, you know, a, a huge Burmese python, but they're substantial. I mean, they're, they're substantial and there, there's a kind of a, a darkness and intensity to them they do have absolutely magical uh heads that are shaped with not like um a brown snake more much more like 
kind of an exaggerated mythical pit viper sort of thing. It's with slight sort of pits. But my concern is for my dingo, Jip, who remains kind of a, a spirit familiar. She was kind of the, Kyla, you know, uh, Kalua in, in my main marriage. She was, I think even, well, she really was the, the child and the project and the spirit creature and the tremendous survivor of cancer. She got cancer at age six and live for another 10 years. Although, I mean, we really, we did chemo and everything. So there's a complex, and she's a dingo, which really is not a dog. It's another kind of form. And everyone would say that. I mean, there's just, it's, she's she's emblematic of, of mysticism performed, if you want to call it that. I mean, it was as concrete and undeniable. She was capable of shape-shifting. She was telepathic. There are a lot of things that, that people say about dingoes, and they're true. You know, there's really something about them. So I was really concerned about protecting her from these snakes. And there was one other snake behind in this kind of a uh, manger part of a barn beside the water where the two apparently brown snakes were. And this snake was very colorful, like a coral sort of snake, which is segmented into colored rectangles, but it had a complex sort of paisleyish pattern in its back and was clearly uh, some form of exotic rattlesnake like a Central American rattlesnake. So three snakes and the dingo, which I don't think is, for me, you know, in my own, the intimacy of the dreaming, isn't reducible to a clear symbol. You know, she's she's emblematic in that sense. I'm not really, I can't say what she means in that way. But that was my dream, and I thought I would share it because it appears to be, I think some people would hear it as, well, a Jungian dream for symbolic interpretation. And I I welcome that, but I I'm I'm actually puzzled. I like in this case thinking of the dream as what it is. I do like the emblematic aspect of it in this case. Um that very colorful rattlesnake that's that is interesting to me so you are in the context of the dream you're very concerned about the two venomous australian brown snakes though you didn't mention are you also concerned about the colorful rattlesnake you know not so much and it's interesting. i mean the, the rattlesnake is at a distance so there is a dimensional frame there. So you could say it's less of a threat. But I think intuitively, and when you ask me the question, I think that the colorfulness of it is a, is a false assurance there. Or it, 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 it takes the pedal off the, the anxiety, fear thing. I clearly have something to worry about with the two brown snakes. Uh, I don't want the dingo to get near them in any way or for them to you know, be any more aware of us than they are. The rattlesnake, however beautiful, and I could see it in my mind, it is gorgeous. Uh, the under pattern is, is a kind of beautiful red, like uh, maybe 
the color that's you know beautiful spanish flamenco boots might be if they weren't black mm. you know and uh so it's lovely um but it nevertheless is a rattlesnake and it's 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 on the alert distance and color i'd have to think about that some more but i think that's probably the key i think the key to that dream is what you're what you're not anxious about within it and, oh that's um, a lovely okay yeah. See, that's just a lovely, simple judo move that really opens that up in many ways. I think that's really uh, very helpful. Yeah. We should do dream interpretation. We should get clients and, and have them sit on a couch and have them tell us their dreams and we can come at it. We can tag team it. We can tag you know, team it. We could dreams. do an OnlyFans account like and have it keep it, you know, really just very legit. But mm -hmm. I think it would be huge. I think that would be huge dream interpretations we'd have to we'd have to get our image down we'd have to i need to uh i don't know maybe have like some more some more jewelry or something some more yeah rings on yeah we might have to know. prop it a little bit although you know there's a lot of latitude with what we could do with that from you know mm -hmm. very straight to very stylized theatrical you know it we, and i don't know was, that's worth thinking about that's a really good idea and it would be a lot dream of fun. psychology occult dream psychology well on that note this has been absolutely rocket ship insane crazy fun but i must i must go to bed dear listeners and friend chris yeah uh, me too i have to get up at four yeah that's about that's where i'm at too yeah yeah no i hear you well listen that was just absolutely beautiful beautiful to listen to and extremely thought provoking and resonant. And I, I just got some great, uh, very helpful uh, suggestions for uh, the book and at just the right timing. Your timing is also, I mean, timing is everything in a sense, but that really, that makes it a harmonic for me. And I, I pick up those and I savor them and I got several of them with this episode so thank you very much and thanks to everyone for listening yeah yeah thanks everybody talk to you soon